worship team. Well, Christmas this year has been different from other years, has it not? And, and that includes shopping. Because it seems to me that probably the majority of your shopping, as well as mine, was done this year in the courtesy of my own home uh, using uh, computers and the Internet. So last-minute shopping had to be done early. It's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? Last-minute shopping had to be done early in order for the gifts to arrive in time to open them up on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning. And yet, as the sun rises on December the 26th, the official gift return begins. And so items were the wrong size, the wrong color, the wrong brand, or just plain wrong. They just needed to be returned. And so even though we celebrated Christmas a couple of days ago, I believe we can still talk about Christmas gifts. And so I want to do that today in this final message of our Christmas series. And I want you to know today that, that the gifts that I'm going to be talking about should never, ever be returned to the giver. These are incredibly significant gifts. And now, they, they will benefit every person, but the gifts I'm going to be talking about today actually go a long way in shaping cultures, people groups, entire civilizations. Now, some of the gifts that we would normally think of, such as love and grace and forgiveness, uh, those are the kinds of gifts that if you go into a store, you know, they're, they're all those popular gifts you put at the end of the aisle to make sure you don't miss them. But the gifts I'm going to be talking about are the ones that aren't necessarily at the end of an aisle. They're, they're the gifts that would probably be at the very back of the big box stores. You have to walk a long way to get to them. However, once you discover them and their value, you would never, ever want to exchange them. And so here are the five gifts that we're going to be looking at today, the gifts of Christmas that come from God that are a little bit more obscure. Here's number one, the gift of science. Now, as soon as I say science, there are some of you who are beginning to think in your mind, but isn't there a great deal of conflict and tension between Christianity and science today? And my response is, yes, there is a great deal of conflict. And it seems that the sources of, of, of that conflict comes from two different groups of people. First of all, there's one group that's known as the science people and another group of people known as the Bible people. And so it's a pretty big umbrella, and both groups are seemingly creating a lot of conflict uh, between these two areas. A key reason for this tension uh, is the fact that these two groups are asking different questions. Science and scientists are oftentimes asking the question, how did this happen? They look at the phenomena and they say, how did that occur? That's their primary focus. Bible people do ask that question, but more often than not, Bible people are not asking the how, but the who. Who did that? Or even perhaps, why did he do that? So some of the conflict comes because these groups are asking different questions. Another key reason for the conflict is that both groups have the tendency 
to think that their discipline can do more than it actually does. And so I'm going to put on the screen a quote from a philosopher uh, writing about 100 years ago. His name was Bertrand Russell. And this is how he sees what science will do today. And he tends to be a little bit idealistic. He is very optimistic. And frankly, his, his thoughts about what science can do are an overreach. This is what he says. Science can enable our grandchildren to live the good life by giving them knowledge, self-control. And I'm thinking, really? Really? Can science bring self-control? And he says that. And characters productive of harmony rather than strife. Well, I believe that's an overreach because science, we know, can do many good things. But basically, science cannot answer the questions about morality. It cannot answer the questions about self-control and character. Why the heart makes such terrible choices. Science, in a very sense, can be very neutral, very helpful, but there's also those people who will use science in a very negative, nefarious, evil way. Science can't solve the depravity of the human heart. So significant overreach on the part of science. And yet Bible people also can sometimes make the Bible into a science book. Now, lest you immediately turn your mind off here, listen carefully. The Bible does make accurate statements about the cosmos. It does. However, the Bible also uses common everyday language. It, it, it used the vernacular of people in the um, age in which it lived. And so uh, it was common in those days to assume that the sun rises in the east. We still say that, do we not? Is that a scientific explanation? Of course not. And so we can read the Bible in such a way that we make it say things about science that it really is not saying. And so we want to be very, very precise in how we interpret and understand the Bible when it seems to be talking about the cosmos. Now, having said that, I want us to understand this morning that Christianity provided the womb for the birth of modern-day science. Did you know that? That Christianity provided the womb for the birth of modern-day science. The birth of it can be traced all the way back to the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. So that John William Draper, who was the author of a book, History of Conflict Between Religion and Science, said this, Science was the twin sister of the Reformation. Now we in the Evangelical Free Church and the Covenant Church of America, we trace our roots all the way back to the Protestant Reformation. It is a very significant moment in our history. And here we have this author who is saying that science was the twin sister of the Reformation. You see, it went like this. With the Reformation came theologians who believed that God revealed himself in Scripture as well as in nature. They took very seriously Psalm 19. The heavens 
declare the glory of God. They took seriously what, what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. And they concluded that, that God is a God of order. And nature, as a result, is neither random nor is it chaotic. The, the laws of nature that we understand today actually were a set of rules imposed by God upon creation. And as a result of studying creation, we begin to see a pattern develop. Those laws actually are traceable back to God himself. So one man said this, pastors after the scientific revolution viewed engagement with new science as an opportunity to understand God as creator. And as they understood God as creator through studying nature, they believed not only would they know God better, but they would be able to give God greater glory. Another man said this, the New England clergy, being the best educated people in their community, were often the chief interpreters and communicators to the congregation of this new science. It was not in conflict. They saw it as enabling us to have a better understanding of the nature of God. Here's some other illustrations of, of scientists. Robert Oppenheimer, American physicist known as the father of the atomic bomb. In 1962, he said that Christianity was needed to give birth to modern science. Other famous scientists saw no conflict. We think of men such as Francis Bacon, the chemist Robert Boyle, astronomer and mathematician Johannes Kepler, Galileo and Copernicus. All these men were ardent believers. Sir Isaac Newton saw God's works in nature and his works in the Bible as being twin facets of God's self-disclosure. More recently in our era, Francis Collins is a physician, a geneticist noted for his discovery of disease genes. He is the director of the National Institute for Health, passionate follower of Jesus Christ. This last year in 2020, he won the Templeton Prize for his work in reconciling science and the Bible. To think that one of the benefits of the Reformation was a culture that permitted science to be birthed. What an unusual gift God has given to humanity. Here's a second gift, the gift of dignity. The English word dignity is rooted in a Latin word that means worthy of esteem, worthy of honor. A certain, uh, a certain respect is due, something of weighty importance. Now, when you take the different isms, the ideologies of the world, uh, a person's particular worldview, you begin to realize that Christianity stands out so differently from these other isms and ideologies. Because most of these ideologies and isms have a, uh, a lack of appreciation for the dignity of human life. Going all the way back to the Greek philosophers um, Aristotle and Plato, both of these men held that humans are by nature slavish and suitable only for slavery. In other words, 
most humans did not have natures worthy of being free. In their day, Greeks would use dignity to describe a person only in rare cases. Most people were not given a dignity because they were alive. Communism sees man as an economic entity. Freudian psychology sees man as a sexual creature. The evolutionary model, probably the most popular model today, sees human beings as simply the product of blind, random, purposeless, natural causes. We are a cosmic accident. And then you contrast those isms with Christianity, and it says that to God, man is the crowning work of his creation. Evolution says that man descended from apes, and God says that mankind is the apex of all of creation. We're a masterpiece. A masterpiece. Look to your neighbor and tell them, you are a masterpiece. Siblings, I know it's hard for you to do that to your brother and sister, but do it anyway to realize that the person sitting next to you is a masterpiece. In Genesis 1 and verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So we have the imago Dei within us. Now, God's uh, attributes can be divided into two categories. There are the incommunicable attributes, his omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence, his um, eternal nature, those he does not give to humanity. But there are other traits that are communicable that he gives to us, and that permits us to have a relationship one with another and a relationship with him. So we have personality, we have intelligence, emotion, and will. We have the ability to think and to feel and to make decisions and to act. It gives us dignity. With God, we're given the ability to rule with Him and also to create life. The Imago Dei is beautiful. That mankind has dignity is true regardless of race, color, gender, aptitude, age, intelligence, our special needs, whether we're handicapped or not, and it goes even into the womb to describe the fetus growing inside our potential mother. That's how significant we are. Christianity bestows a dignity to every human life. Mother Teresa, for many years, was a Catholic nun serving on the streets of Calcutta, India, uh, giving her life away to the poorest of the poor. And on one occasion, she was asked why she spent so much of her time with those who were dying, as opposed to devoting her resources to those who were living, who would actually have a chance to overcome their affirmities. And she said this, these people who are dying need to know before they die 
that they are made in the image of God and that God loves them. They needed to know before they died that they had dignity. And so she spent her life caring for those who were dying. I tell you what, the dignity that God has bestowed upon humanity as the Imago Dei, that dignity has spawned some of the greatest philanthropic, humanitarian efforts in all of history. Why do people give sacrificially and go to places, dangerous places, to help others? Because of the dignity of every human life. What a gift that is that God has given to us. It's, um, it's what C.S. Lewis uh, writes in one of his books. It's a wonderful quote. He says this, There are no human or ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendor. Gift of dignity. Gift number three is the gift of literacy. Because God said, write this stuff down. In, in Exodus 17 and verse 14, he, he speaks to Moses and he says, Moses, write this stuff down so that you will remember it. And in fact, writing in the Bible is a very, very significant uh, value. Uh, it occurs over 460 times using 26 different words and derivatives. Writing it down, recording it so that we can remember it is a key thought. Uh, I have to tell you that uh, throughout my ministry career, when I would go into a meeting, I always took a paper and pen. Now, I had the agenda, but I also had a paper and pen because I wanted to take notes in that meeting. And I watched if the other people coming to the meeting also brought paper and pen. Today we'd say an iPad or a computer. But I wanted to know who came prepared because it, it told me a lot about that person. The, the, in essence, when they would write things down in the meeting, they would, they would be saying, you know what, this is important. I want to remember this. I'm a responsible person. I want to make sure that I, I follow up on the actions according uh, to what we've talked about and decided in this meeting. It's incredibly significant. Now, literacy was another one of the fruits of the Reformation. At the time of the Protestant Reformation in, in uh, Germany, the literacy rate of Europe was less than 5%. The rich and the clergy could read, but books were expensive until Gutenberg invented the printing press. Now, Martin Luther was the, the inaugural person to start the Protestant Reformation. The greatest scholar of the Reformation, in my estimation, and of Luther, said that Luther's greatest achievement was the translation of the entire New Testament from the original Greek into the German tongue. See, up until that point in time, all the religious works of that day were in Latin. Who knew Latin except for clergy? And because the clergy were the only ones that, that knew Latin, 
they were the experts. And they could hold the people in their power because they had all the religious literature. And Luther said, we need to get the Bible into the hands of people. And so he translated the New Testament into the German language so that they could read it for themselves to empower them rather than holding that power in the clergy. So, so significant was this. And, and, and from that time, we see that literacy now also follows missionaries. So uh, an English uh, literature professor from Canada said this, in most of Europe, as in Africa, South America, and in many other parts of the world, the birth of literacy and literature essentially, not accidentally, coincides with the arrival of Christian missionaries. Highland Community Church sponsors many missionaries who have gone and spent their entire lives translating the Bible. You see, years ago, there were, there were people groups that had an oral tradition. In the evening, they would gather around the, the village campfire, and they would pass on the great stories of their heritage. It's a very valuable exercise. Unfortunately, it's, it's, it's being lost today. But as, as missionaries came then, they began to learn the local dialect, and then they begin to translate the Bible in that dialect because we have a tendency to remember better when we write it down. And as a result of, of these missionaries taking uh, the Scriptures and Jesus to all these different places in the world, the gift of literacy has been given to the world. We come to the fourth gift. Another unusual gift is called the gift of humility. Frankly, the allure of power is addictive. So that Mark Knoll, who was a, a history professor at Wheaton College, writes this. Throughout Western history, power has been a far more potent narcotic than the multitude of physical means that humans have used to get high. Power feeds on itself. It is almost never relinquished Voluntarily, voluntarily. So there are three idols in Western civilization today. One of them is, um, is money, and that is centered in New York City. A second idol in Western society today is that of popularity, uh, focused in, in Hollywood and in uh, social media. And then also the third idol would be that of power, and that is centered in Washington, D.C. And so... Power is uh, both an idol as well as a narcotic. It is addictive, and it seems that once you have experienced it, you never want to give up that power voluntarily. And that's what makes the incarnation of Jesus so incredibly significant. So that Paul in Philippians 2 writes this, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, as he was sitting on his throne there in heaven, and the, the thought came about Jesus coming to the earth, it's not as though that he held on to his throne with, with, the, uh, with white knuckles saying, no, I won't go. 
he voluntarily gave up his power. And it says he made himself nothing, taking uh, the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death upon a cross. The significance of the incarnation of Jesus humbling himself is so great that Philip Yancey, in his classic book, The Jesus I Never Knew, said this. Before Jesus, almost no pagan author had used humble as a compliment. And yet Jesus did. In John 13, the night that he was betrayed, as the, they were celebrating the Last Supper, Jesus took a basin, water, and a towel, and he knelt down, and he washed the feet of all 12 of his disciples, including Judas Iscariot. This year, there probably weren't many office Christmas parties. But in previous years, I'm sure there were. And so I ask you, if you've been to an office Christmas party, did you ever have your boss, supervisor, CEO, superintendent, whatever it would, kneel down and wash your feet? It didn't happen. God decided. God decided. Talk about the gift of gave up power to become a humble servant. You know, today, people crave for power, but they respect humility. When you see humility in someone else, you appreciate that. You respect that person because of their humility. Why do we respect people who are humble? Because that's a gift that Jesus gave to us when he came to the earth. Number five, it's the gift of compassion. You know, it's interesting that, that we decorate and we dress up for Christmas. We, we wreath our doors. We deck our shrubs. We, we, we even decorate our rain gutters, for goodness sakes. Can you believe that? You know, we spruce up our, our, our living rooms, we, and we get all the lights and glitter that we possibly can. We dress up and we decorate for Christmas. And it's ironic because at Christmas, from God's perspective, he dressed down. He moved away from the glitter and the glory. And it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he did that for a very specific reason. He became a man so that he might understand our human condition. Fathers, this is for you. Um, Let's imagine that, you know, your wife is, is in labor. She's, she's in the hospital. And uh, you are excited, both of you, about this new child that is coming. But she is now in the 27th hour of labor. I mean, it's excruciatingly painful. And so there you are. You know, you're at her side. And you're wiping the sweat from her face. You're putting ice chips on her lips. You're rubbing her back. You're doing all those things. And then you lean in. And you whisper to her these immortal words. I know what you're going through. I feel your pain. I guarantee you, 
If you said it once, you'd never said it ever again. Of course you wouldn't say that, would you? Because you don't understand. God does. Because God said he's going to send his son to take on human flesh so that he would be able to say to us, I understand your temptation. I understand your limitation. I, too, am walking in the same body that you are walking. So in the book of Hebrews, we read these words. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, too, shared in their humanity. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of You see the compassion of God? Here's the God of heaven, created the universe. And he is so compassionate towards us in our weakness. These are the gifts of Christmas. They're not the ones we would immediately identify with, but I tell you, they are incredibly significant because these are the gifts that turn barbarians into a civilized people. Dignity, literacy, humility, and compassion. And they're a part of a life, a people group, culture, and civilization that prospers. Let me end with one other story. story of a 4th century A.D. monk by the name of Calamicus. He lived in the east, and he was traveling to Rome. Uh, legend has it that he, that he came to uh, Rome to celebrate Christmas. Never been there. He wanted to see the city, wanted to be a part uh, of the Christmas uh, celebration there. And so as he made his way into uh, Rome for the first time, he joined the people group that seemed to be moving in a direction. He'd never been to the city, so he just kind of followed the flow of traffic. And it seemed as though that the, that the people were moving towards the great Roman Colosseum where they held the Gladiator Games. These have been held for several hundred years now. Uh, They were barbaric. They They were evil and crude because men, great soldiers, men of great strength, would come there and kill each other for the entertainment of the emperor and Roman citizens. Salamachus did not really know what was going on. He just followed the crowd and found himself in the Colosseum. And as the game began that day, the, the gladiators came out on the, on the uh, 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 sandy floor of the Colosseum. They stood before the emperor's box, and they said, We who are about to die salute thee. Can you imagine what Salamachus must have thought when he heard those words? We who are about to die salute thee. And so... The battle began. Salamachus sees what's going on. He can't believe that that people would be killing each other for sport. 
will entertain it. And so, as legend has it, he stands up in the section where he was, had been seating, and, and he says, in the name of Christ, forbear. Meaning, in the name of Christ, stop this insanity. This is barbaric. No one listened. They were so enthralled with these men and the clergy. And so, to no avail, they listened. And so he went down to the front of his section. And once again, he said, in the name of Christ, forbear. Still, no attention given. And so he jumped down onto the floor of the Colosseum and made his way out to where the gladiators were, were wielding their swords. Legend has it that people begin to laugh. This little monk scurrying around with these muscular men. Again, he cried out, in the name of Christ, forbear, stop this. People became angry. gladiator games in the entire Roman Empire. There were other factors that were at work, but it was this singular event of one monk who had the courage to stand up and say, stop this barbaric activity. It was that where everything crystallized and Rome stopped hosting and permitting any gladiator games. That's what Christianity brings to the world. Folks were all born uncivilized barbarians. And it is these gifts that Christ brings to us that turns barbarians into civilized people. What would we do if we did not have these gifts that God has given to us? Let's pray together. Lord, we see the barbaric nature of people in some of the tragedies on the news these days. God, we realize that the darkness inside a person's heart and soul that would cause them to commit such a, a tragedy is so demonic, so evil. Lord, we realize that you came into this world not only to redeem people, but, but, but to restore culture and civilization. And Lord, it begins with understanding that, that each person is a masterpiece. Lord, in, in this auditorium today, in every seat, there is a masterpiece of your work. Lord, some don't feel that way today, however. And I ask that your spirit would press in and Lord, remind them they are the crowning work of your creation. And Lord, may they hear 
your tender voice speaking to them, letting them know how precious and valuable they are. Lord, may there be there's someone who needs more than just this word. They need to go to the prayer room or to talk to someone after the service. Lord, do not permit anyone to go home feeling as though that they are insignificant. Thank you, Jesus, for the gifts that you have brought to our world, to our lives. We're grateful, and we will not return them. We keep them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.